0: What is a follower of Jesus? That is the question. It's a critical question. Because within pop culture, we've got people like, for example, Kanye West, who's saying um, he follows Jesus. He's actually uh, appeared in the Rolling Stone magazine and trying to appear like him and, and saying he follows him and even believes in some way, shape or form that his life is... Um, kind of linked to, to Jesus in, in, some, in some way, shape. So Kanye West is even saying he's a follower of Jesus. But you've got that on one end of the spectrum, and then you've got the Pope on the other end of the spe- spectrum, who is kind of uh, this figure that uh, people uh, look up to, but is kind of uh, not within the real world, and isn't driving around in a bulletproof car, and then the rest of it, and, and, and um, not—it's completely different to Kanye West. we have got one on one side and one on the other. What? is a follower of Jesus. We're going through um, the series, Outlaw Jesus, and we're looking at some of the things which Jesus has said. Um, And we're really looking at, if Jesus is who he says he is, then the things that he talks about will change us. It will challenge us. It will transform us. Um, And I want to ask today, would you be willing for that to happen? Are we coming to Jesus with an open mind? Um, because like what I said before, people's ideas of following Jesus can vary. People may say to be a follower of Jesus, you you need to be rich and healthy and be comfortable. That is how I would identify myself as being a follower of Jesus. Or some people may say to be a follower of Jesus, you need not to be in the world at all um, and don't have any comforts. So that's the other end of the spectrum, like like what I was saying before. Or to be a follower of Jesus, you must have to accept he was a good guy And you just need to try and live a better life. That's me being a follower of Jesus. But what does Jesus actually say about it? After all, it is all about him. What does he have to tell us today? So that's the passage that we're going to look. We're going to look at uh, Luke 9 um, from 51 to uh, uh, 62. Um, The message today is called Outlawing Our, Our Ideas on Being a Disciple. The word disciple is basically um, the word, uh, for saying, well, you're a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is a disciple. Okay. So we're going to, the bulk of our time, we're going to look at 57 to 62. Uh, but just to give you a bit of context into what's happening, uh, within what is going on in the Bible, we're going to go from 51. So. As it says from verse 51, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people who were there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. So we've got this image of Jesus coming into a Samaritan village. He's with a group of followers. Now it's not just the 12 disciples who he's with. He's with a multitude of people following him. Um, the town's buzzed with Jesus' teachings. He's already done some amazing things beforehand in, the, uh, in a few passages before. And people are following Jesus, quite literally following him. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. That's where he's going. And in the ESV version, it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. In some other ver- versions, it says he set his face like a flint. He is absolutely... Uh, no way going to be taken off track. He is going to Jerusalem, and that's where he's going to die on a cross. And he knows that because in a couple of passages before that, um, he's speaking to his his disciples about it. Um, The Samaritans didn't accept him. Now, the Samaritans had their own belief system. They had their own ways of doing things. And Jesus, as you can imagine, comes in with a group of followers. And and, and Jesus comes in. And the Samaritans, because he was going to Jerusalem, they did not accept him. They have their own belief system, like I've just said. They wanted him to validate their way of thinking. Now, some of us have our own ways of thinking we have our own, our own belief systems we have our own our own thoughts we have our own ideas we have our own um, things and how we ways of see we things uh, think things should go we have a, but if jesus comes into our life and he challenges that then we have an issue we have an issue if to, we cannot we cannot put jesus in a box and say jesus i've no, you've got your own thing going on there but i've got my own thing going on jesus is god that's what we're saying and if jesus is god He's not coming to follow us. We are following him. I want to make that very, very clear. Jesus isn't coming into our lives to kind of fit around what we do. We are following Jesus. And as the Samaritans said, see you later, is that what we're going to do? Could we come to this with the mindset of knowing that we could be challenged and our lives could be changed because of it? I would pray that we would come to it thinking that God can change us. And hopefully, he will do that. So, from 54 to 55, we've got, um, I think is quite a funny bit of the uh, Bible. I love to see um, the disciples interacting with Jesus. It gives me hope, um, because they're so normal. um, And they make mistakes, and they say just stupid things, and I just think it's... uh, uh, funny. But anyway, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked the Lord, do you want us to call uh, fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Now, you can imagine the scenario. The Samaritans have just dismissed Jesus and say, well, you're not in our belief system. See you later. And they rejected him. So Jesus is on his way. And then James and John says, um, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? I see this as if you, if, as if you can imagine the scene, anyone's got children, you can imagine this. Um, you're in one room, your daughter or son comes to you and says to you, oh, that, I've, I, look what I've done that, I'm really, really, oh, really, they really want to please you, you can see it in their eyes, they really, really want to please you, saying I've done this, I've, oh, please come and see what I've done. So you go and follow them in the room and you expect to see this lovely painting or whatever, then you see... One of the you know, brothers or sisters, like gaffer tape to the door, or you see like a fire, you know, like going off, or you see the television on the floor, and he just, and it's a case of the, at that moment in time, the heart is open. They actually want to really please you, but at that time, um, you have to lovingly rebuke them and say, "That's not the way. That's not you do. You don't put fires in the living room, okay?" And, and you know and, and that's how and I could see Jesus just having these conversations over and over again with his disciples just shaking his head going no that's what not, and they really want to please him and that for me just just gives me hope and it, it shows that the Bible is, is true it's full of real people in real situations normal people um, and that is an amazing thing so so um, so Jesus is on his way, the, um, the Samaritans have rejected him, he's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, he's just rebuked the uh, disciples because of, um, of what they've said, um, and here we have three potential disciples here. Now we're not told within this passage um, whether they have to become disciples, um, but we've got three um, dis- potential disciples where we have um, dialogue with and conversation with. Um, and Jesus is amazingly blunt. Response is he, he, blunt with them. Um, he he says exactly uh, what he means, and, and he's very direct. Um, and in the three responses, I'm going to. This is how we're going to structure the talk today. It gives an uncompromising truth, a firm foundation, and an amazing hope. So that's a, an uncompromising truth, a firm foundation, and an amazing hope. So first, we'll look at an uncompromising truth from verse 57. As, we were walking, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, "I will follow you wherever you go." You can imagine the scene, can't you? There's loads of people uh, walking towards um, uh, Jerusalem, um, and then you know someone's there and just getting t- caught up in the moment, saying, "Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go." Um, and Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What is Jesus talking about there? What is he talking about? Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to, re- uh, to lay his head. Jesus is saying, Do you know what kind of Savior I am? Do you know that I'm actually on my way to uh, Jerusalem? I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be tortured. Do you know that I'm calling on you to take up your cross and follow me? Do you know that if you follow me, then it's not going to be comfortable? Do you know that if you follow me, it's not going to be comfortable and it may risk losing your life in that particular scenario? Do you know what situation... You're letting yourself in for. Now, you may be thinking, is he trying to put him off there? He's no. He's telling him the truth. He's telling him exactly the scenario where he's going. He's telling him that he was homeless, he had no place to lay his head. Here's a lie that some parts of the church has given us that if you become a follower of Jesus, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, you'll be comfortable. And Jesus has died for you to have that privilege. That, my friends, is a lie. An absolute lie. Jesus never says that. He tolls ta- on us to take up our cross and follow him. Follow him through trials and real pain. See, what some parts of the church have done... I've given us something which is everybody's hope, but it's no one's reality. It is not a reality. Now, some of you may think that if you start walking with Jesus, that everything will be okay, but that is not the case. You might be thinking, well, what's the point then? Um, you're not really selling this to me, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> this is a good sales pitch. Uh, I'm not trying to tell you something. I'm telling you the truth. But bear with me. Uh, the uncompromising truth is that we all suffer... The question is, will we suffer with Jesus or without him? That is the critical question. Because if we grab a hold of that, then we can get somewhere. Paul says something in Colossians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up uh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that anything is lacking in Christ's afflictions on the cross? As Christians, we would say no. The cross was all sufficient. John Piper, looking into this, says this. Christ has prepared a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing except one thing. A personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. God's answer to the lack is to to call the people of Christ people like Paul to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. What he is saying is that in some shape and form when the Holy Spirit is within you when you are a Christian and you go through suffering alright Jesus God can use that to actual, actually give a representation of Christ within this world. Now that for me blows my mind. That for me blows my mind because um how can that be how can we that we show the suffering of christ within this world it's only through the holy spirit's power the fact that we can use the fact that christ can use our suffering is absolutely mind-blowing and we sometimes i think we're, we're surprised when we go into if we go into different ministries or if things get hard we're surprised and we think well why is this why is everything so difficult what is going on why is this happening? Why is that happening? And I heard someone give a great example of being, uh, going into, uh, someone going into the army. They sign up to go into the army. They, um, they, get, um, they get taken off to uh, one of the places to go, um, and they go into the first battle. And as they go into the first battle, a couple of hours goes by, and then they come back, and then they come b- running back to the sergeant going, I can't believe it. They're, they're throwing grenades at me, and they're shooting me, they're doing all these things. I didn't expect this. And the army sergeant will just be saying, that's what you're in for. That's what you signed up for. You're in the army. Don't you understand that when we follow Jesus, life will be difficult. But when we follow Jesus as well, he will give us joy within that time. Because God shapes and molds us in the the toughest seasons of life, And the suffering that's mixed with the Holy Spirit can do three things. It can help us to represent Christ in this world to our friends and family. God can shape and mold us to become more like Jesus. And it can build and strengthen our relationship with Jesus. Now this, being built in with the knowledge that God is completely in control as well, is powerful. I'm not saying that uh, the things that we go through is going to be easy. But what I am saying is that having that peace and having that Joy of knowing that ultimately God can use whatever we're going through. And ultimately he's in control. That's a powerful thing. In 2 Corinthians, God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's work within us, works within us when we completely and utterly rely on him and when we are going through those tough times we rely on him when we are going through those times of real struggle we completely lie on him and um, let's be honest when we pray and we're praying to God in those times of difficulty does it not sometimes feel like you're just praying to nothing let's be honest here does it not feel like sometimes your prayers are just hitting the wall in Romans 8:26 it says the spirit helps us in our weaknesses we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans that for me is such a comfort when there's those times when you just you don't even know what to pray that the holy spirit can intercede for us that it can 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 kind of speak for us in those times it's such an encouragement It's something that is so helpful uh, to me. So be encouraged, I would say. Because when you're in those times of, of complete trial, there is hope in that trial. And there's potential of joy in that trial as well. And all you need to do is ask and look around in this room and there's people who've been through it and can verify for the fact that Jesus has been with them. Uh, Matt Redman, um, famous Christian songwriter, uh, moved to the USA to plant a church and has recently come back. He he had an interview and he said this. Um, The interviewer asked, you had two kids born in the US and both needed critical care. Tell me about that. Uh, And his response was, Jackson and Levi both had some breathing difficulties when they were born. Uh, and ended up in the ICU for a little while. Those moments are never easy to navigate. You're expecting sheer joy in that season, and then you get uh, some struggle thrown in with it. But isn't that so much of what life is like on this journey of faith? So often it's battle and blessing all mixed up into one. But the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize just how faithful he is. And I hope that conviction comes through in some of the songs we've been writing. It's no coincidence that some of the most fruitful songs we've written have flowed, Uh, from some of the hardest moments of our lives, like blessed be your name, uh, you never let go and now never once. They all came from seasons of intense struggle and confusion. There is hope in the suffering. Your suffering is not wasted. Pray to God that the Holy Spirit uses it in any way, shape or form. Um, Your suffering with Jesus can potentially lead other people to Christ. That's if it's with Jesus. Without Jesus, what is the suffering for? I would ask you that question. The things that we go through, the real scenarios that we face every day without Jesus, it's ultimately wasted and confusing. I could not imagine um, going through anything and not having Jesus uh, by my side personally. And I can say, I can vouch for other people within that situation. So, Jesus says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Following Jesus is a call to live a life that will have hurt and pain. But through that, there will be joy and peace, which comes with Jesus, carrying us through, transforming us into the people that he wants us to be. The Christian life is the best life there is. I can say that but it's no way the easiest. And I would ask you not to believe everything you hear about that. Read the Bible and listen to what Jesus says. So that's the first point. Second point is a firm foundation. In verse 59 he says, um, he said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, uh, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, we've just got a man here. Let's just set it into context. It was just saying, he wants to bury his father. It doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. That seems quite harsh um, when you look at it just like that. Um, but what we need to remember is as Jesus says, follow me, he knows the person's heart. This isn't, this isn't just a normal face-to-face conversation like we have. We, we have no inclination of what's going on in people's hearts. But Jesus did. Okay. Um, and we need to look at the critical words uh, uh, within this passage where he says, Lord, first, let me go. See, this is all about priorities, isn't it? Lord, can I, can I do this and then I'll follow you. How many times have we said that? How many times have I said that? Lord, I really want to follow you, but first I've got my career to sort out. Lord, I really want to follow you, but I'm just going to sort out my finances. Lord, I really want to follow you, but I'm just going to wait for that relationship to get sorted. And then I'll follow you. Jesus is saying that I must become over all of that. I must be over all your career, your finances, your relationships. I must be the first priority. That's what he's talking about here. It's priorities. Now, in Jesus' response, is he saying to dishonor your mother and father? Because we need to look at this. Because unfortunately, there's people um, that have used these types of verses and said, for this reason, you do not see your parents. And if that's the fact, then you have to completely be isolated from them. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, clearly not, because that is so not consistent within the Bible and Jesus is teaching. For example, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your mother and father, and Jesus kept that fully. Um, on the cross, Jesus says to John to take um, care of his mother, and the disciples take her in. He clearly loves his mother and cares for his mother. In Matthew 15, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites for distorting the law of uh, dishonoring their parents or honoring their parents. So I believe that Jesus passionately wants us to honor our parents. I don't want you to look at that and think that Jesus is a cult leader and is saying that we need to be isolated from parents. Jesus is not saying that at all. So what is going on? Within that day, because of the Ten Commandments, it was very much expected that uh, the children would take care of the parents. Um, and it was very much expected it was, it was their responsibility. So if a father got ill, um, then the children would take that weight and they would sort out the estates, they would sort out everything to do with the family. At the end of that is the inheritance. okay? But the children are expected to be with the parents by their deathbed completely all the time until, obviously, the parents passed away. That's uh, the culture that we're looking at. So, first thing, it was highly unlikely that the man's father was actually dead. Um, he couldn't have been burying his father there and then because he was with Jesus and he was following Jesus to Jerusalem. Okay. So, his father wasn't, probably wasn't even dead at that point. Um, secondly, some people say that his father was probably nowhere near death at that moment in time. Because um, if he was near death, he would have to be by his bedside, he'd have to be caring for his father. And again, he wouldn't be allowed to go out and, um, and uh, listen to Jesus' teaching and go and, and follow him into Jerusalem. So Jesus is looking into the man's heart and the man's real statement is, I will follow you once I have my inheritance, once I get things sorted, my dad passes away, I'll follow you then. That's the real statement. Now, does this sound familiar to us? It's God calling you and tugging at you and you're putting off saying, I'll follow you, but. I will follow you, but. Um, let me get my career sorted and the rest of it. Jesus is saying that now is the time. It was the urgency. And sometimes Jesus, is in, it, it, Jesus in the passages uh, we just read will use an overstatement to really drill home the point of what he's trying to say. Now, you may think that uh, the response back uh, is quite blunt, but, and John Piper says that the responses are very hard but very sweet. Um, and as an aside, sometimes I think we need people to speak bluntly within our lives, don't we? Um, I don't think we need to be so shocked about uh, what, what's been said, because sometimes we need people just to say things how they are, uh, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Let the dead bury their own dead, and they and, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Like I stated before, Jesus gives a uh, um, deliberate overstatement to drill home the point. Um, In Ezekiel, chapter 37, in the Old Testament, um, there's a there's a situation where there's a prophet and he looks at and he's and he's in a valley of dry bones, and um, God um, asks him to um, to speak to the dry bones in the Holy Spirit. Um, would uh, bring them to life and the bones come to life and then they have uh, flesh on them and there's this, this amazing vision and at the end of it uh, there's an army of people there with skin and flesh and breathing and everything. The Bible and Jesus describe people who are spiritually um, far from him and have no relationship with him. He, they describe, him, um, they describe the, those people as dead. That's how I describe them, as spiritually dead Jesus mentions many times that if you don't have a relationship with God, you are spiritually dead. Now that sounds harsh, but that's a biblical uh, uh, description of what it's like to not be in a relationship with God. Steve Jobs, um, who's Paul's hero, as you probably know, um, wanted to recruit John Scully, who was um, working in Pepsi. And he was trying to get him because he wanted him to come into Apple. And he wanted him to be um, uh, part within his team. And he really tried to get him. He was, tried every trick in the book to, to try and get this marketing person, this marketing genius to join Apple. Um, and there was a phrase, and I don't know if you've heard it, but it's a phrase that I love. Um, that And this is the thing that got him. Uh, this is the thing that uh, actually won John Scully, uh, John Scully over to, to work with Steve Jobs. He says... Steve Jobs said to him, Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? And that's the statement that made it for him. See, what Jesus is saying in this statement is that the gospel must be first priority within our lives, above anything else, above family, above careers, above social state, status, above relationships, above everything. And what he's saying is let the spiritual, spiritually dead have their own priorities. But what I want you to do is to proclaim the kingdom of God. That gospel that you're going to proclaim will eventually change the world and it will change people's lives. That's what I want you to focus on. I want that to be at the forefront of your minds. I want you to be gospel-centered. Now, disciples, followers of Jesus, really need, as followers of Jesus, we really need to fight um, uh, uh, to believe this day in, day day out. We need to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is our death and uh, resurrection. And if we have that at the forefront of our minds, then we will will be people who are thinking of ways to engage with this world and to do what Jesus says, proclaim the kingdom of God. See, we would be active in spreading the message and and putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations to proclaim this message. If the gospel is central to what we do, then we would want to go out and tell people about it. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to have, want this to be your first priority above anything else. Now, that's quite blunt. But what Jesus is simply saying is, be grounded in the gospel. Now, that's that is for our benefit and for His benefit. You see, within our culture, we are we are looking for things with um, that will never change. We are looking for things that have a firm foundation. But the things we put our trust in and hope in um, always change. We um, we could put our trust in our feelings. We could put trust in uh, in our careers. We could put a trust in, um, in our relationships, in our money, in our time. We could put trust in absolutely anything, and they will all change. The only thing that will never change until you become a Christian, and t- until the day we die, will be the gospel. That will never change. It's consistent. And Jesus is saying this and speaking to the man so bluntly because this is of critical um, importance. See, if I put my children, a personal example, if I put my children above the gospel and Jesus' mission, when they fail me, which they do, <laughs> but when they, when they fail me, my world will come crashing down because i put all my hopes in them. If I put my hopes and my dreams into my career and I live for that, when that goes wrong, Everything will come crashing down. The gospel is our firm foundation. It is the thing we need to build our lives upon. It is the only consistent thing within our lives. That's the reality. It will never change. God never changes. The same yesterday, today and forevermore. We need that firm foundation. In Hebrews 6.19 it says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Jesus is our anchor. He is our hope. And if we forget that, we will drift. We will drift from different people's opinions, ideas. We will drift into whatever. We need to have that anchor firm and secure. This is what the whole world is crying out for. The whole world is crying out for um, reliability. In this time we've got a chaos and crisis, we don't know what's going to be happening next. This is what the whole world is, uh, is crying out for. And this is our motivation. This is what we need to be proclaiming to people about uh, the gospel that will never change the gospel that uh, can change them and renew them and give them life and meaning and purpose um, this is, this is everything that we need to be thinking of to be putting it above everything else. Now, you may have a question, you may think this. Well, if the gospel is so, um, is firm and secure, and then you're telling me that we'll also be willing to go into uncomfortable situations and take risks, which by very nature isn't secure, I don't get that. How does, how does that marry up? How can I be uncomfortable um, and, and go in risk-taking scenarios for, to proclaim the gospel um, when... You know, when you're telling me that the gospel is secure, how, how does that work? But my answer would be is because the gospel is our firm foundation, we can take risks. We we are, we can go and, and, and proclaim uh, to people because we know that the gospel is where we have our identity, not anything else. I don't know if you know much about the, the history of this place, of Christchurch. See, it was a risk, in, in uh, some senses of words, to have a church here. See, but see, if there was no gospel, nothing uh, underlying with the gospel, if no foundation there, then we could have easily been drifted from idea to opinion to opinion to, um, uh, to different things, to people's issues, whatever. Okay. What I'm saying is, is that, if this, I mean, just look around and see what God has done. But if this did not work, Our identity is not wrapped up in this. Our identity is still wrapped up in the gospel. The gospel needs to be grounded. The gospel needs to be worked within us. And that's what I'm saying is that with the gospel we are allowed to take risks. We are allowed to love our families. We are allowed to um, uh, go into our careers. We are allowed to have relationships and not be knocked over by them if they fail. Because our identity isn't wrapped up within them. Jonathan Edwards, who was an Olympic triple uh, jumper uh, athlete, uh, he he was a uh, um, he, he did songs of praise. He was the kind of like the evangelical Christian poster boy. He was the person that people thought, yeah, is a Christian, and he, he had the whole thing about um, not um, jumping on a Sunday and and all the rest of it and and things and. And then out of the blue, in 2007, he publicly said, publicly said he lost his faith. And in an interview, uh, a family said this. It said, Jonathan's identity was tied up with him being an athlete much more than he imagined. He was world record holder and Olympic champion. And it wasn't until he retired and realized how much he depended on that. Not long after, afterwards, he started to have doubts and uncertainties about his faith. Those doubts have grown louder and who knows where it will end. See, it looks like Jonathan didn't really have his life grounded in the gospel. He had his life grounded in to what Jesus could do for him. And because that happened, when his career ended, he simply didn't need Jesus anymore. He didn't need him anymore, so he renounced his faith. And that's why I'm saying that the gospel and Jesus needs to be our anchor. This is something that is only done by grace. There is a danger when we listen to this stuff, we can say, Well, I failed, you know, I've got to try really hard, I've got to do a load of work, and just to believe that this is going on, whatever. Um, I'm not saying that because it's all by grace. If you accept Jesus into your life, then Jesus will work within you and the Holy Spirit will work within you and He will start to change you and start to change your desires. And gradually, this will happen. But what I am saying is that it's something that we may need to fight for. It's something that we may need to be reminded about every day. There's a phrase of saying that we need to get up in the morning and preach the gospel to ourselves. Just to look in the mirror and say that you are a child of God. And to be um, transformed by that reality not by anything else that goes on around us and that is liberating and freeing because we can go and we can do the things within this world um, knowing that we're not going to be crushed by them when ultimately uh, when ultimately they could fail us so that's uh, the second point firm foundation um, and here's the final part I'm going to say an amazing hope Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Um, At first glance, uh, the verse doesn't seem that hope-filled. You look at that and you think, well, I don't think I'm going to be fit for the kingdom of God because... uh, I've looked back a number of times. Bear with me. Um, Let's look briefly at the passage. We see the word again where uh, he says, but first. Again, it's about priorities. Um, And this is showing that Jesus wasn't his first priorities and he had his eyes uh, on the past, looking back. See, the actual thing this man is saying is this Jesus, I really want to follow you, similar to what this other person was saying. Jesus, I really want to follow you, but let me go back to my family. Let me go back to um, uh, friends, and I'm going to tell them first, and then after that, I'll follow you. That's what's uh, going on here. And remember, Jesus knows the heart of this person. It's not just a face-to-face discussion um, that they're having. It's a heart-to-heart with the person, and Jesus knows deep down exactly what's going on with this man. I wonder if that's where you're at. I wonder if that's, you've got to the point where you've been coming along for um, you know for a, uh, for a period of time and you've been listening and you, and you feel God tugging at you and, and speaking um, to you and, and there's a temptation there to, to look back and to, to look back at um, what you've had, to look back at, at different things. My encouragement to you would be to keep going, to keep pressing forward, um, to keep asking questions, um, to, to go to Christianity Explored to keep going and to keep going forward. Um, that would be my uh, encouragement to you. Now, Jesus uses uh, an excellent analogy of a plow. And obviously within those days, they, um, they didn't plow the fields how we plough the fields with you know, a, a nice tractor and air conditioning and all the rest of it. They had um, a plow and they had to push it. That's it. That was them doing. That was them going for it. Um, and what we're saying is, Whoever puts the hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So he's saying, someone who who pushes the plough and is looking back, then it's not going to be a straight line. It's going to be all over the place. And if it's all over the place, then it's crooked. And if it's crooked, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is like... Me saying to you, or, or me going home and saying, um, right, I'm going to go in my car, I'm going to drive to work, and as I drive to work, I'm going to look backwards all the way. And I'm going to look backwards, and you probably think that's uh, that'll be an improvement to my driving. But, um, but you're going to drive to work backwards, and you're going to do that. You won't get to work if you did that, all right? Um, that's what he's saying. Anyone who does that will have a crooked line, and will not be fit for the kingdom of God. Is that it? Is that... Or, is that it? Is that the hope-filled statement that we want? Well, if that's all there was, then it would not be very hope-filled. But we need to link that to the passage that we, ju- that we read uh, at the start. We need to think about where Jesus is going. Jesus is going on a journey to Jerusalem. And what's he going to do at Jerusalem? He's going to die on a cross. And when he dies on the cross, what happens? He's going to die... For people like you and for me to have a relationship with him. Jesus is absolutely dead set on going to Jerusalem. He has figuratively speaking put his hand to the plow and is going forward and he is not uh, looking back. See it says there no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. No one is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's the whole point. I'm not fit for service in the kingdom of God. You're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. But the hope that we have here is that Jesus has done it all. He has put his hand to the plough. He has gone to Jerusalem and he has died for us. That is the gospel. And what we believe is that as he went to Jerusalem and died for us, he, something happened on a cross. And Martin Luther calls it the great exchange where Jesus becomes our sin, basically. All the things that we have done, all the things that we have thought, all the things that we are, Jesus became that. And then what we receive is Jesus' righteousness. We receive his grace. We receive his goodness. We receive um, the Holy Spirit that transforms us and makes us into the people that he wants us to be. That is the gospel. That is the good news of, uh, of where we are, and it doesn't just end there, you see. Because someone wrote um, in a book uh, called Gospel-Centered uh, Discipleship, it writes this: "Believing the gospel is not a passive one-time decision; it's an active, continual fight for faith in what God says is noble, true, and good." See, it's not a case of like we just read, saw in the video that when you become a Christian, um, you, you say you say a prayer, and then that's it until you die. It's a case of a continual process that Jesus is working within you, that Jesus is shaping you. It's an amazing thing. And can I just say this as well? You're not meant to do it in isolation. You're not meant to do it by yourself. You're meant to do it with the church. You're meant to do it with people around you. And can I encourage you to get into a life group? to be in a, in a group where people are saying gospel truths to each other and to, uh, to be praying for each other and to be uh, really be thinking about each other. Can I encourage you to do that? Because the gospel is central to everything that we do. Absolutely essential. So as I close, I just want you to think of this. This is all by grace and it's not of our own effort at all. Jesus is calling all of us to follow him. And in his video, and in the video we just saw, he said it was a summons to lose our lives. But to lose our lives for what? It's to lose our lives for something much, much better. It's to lose our lives for something where we can hope, have hope and joy uh, in suffering. It's to lose our lives for something where we have a firm foundation, what we can rely on, which will never let us down. And it's to lose our lives by having an amazing hope that will never let us down. Jesus has died for you. He's died for me. And it's by grace that we have been saved.